0: Take your Bibles, if you would, with me this morning, please, and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. For the past several weeks, we have been studying through Paul's exhortations to the minister Timothy regarding specifically the danger of false study in the church, about striving uh about words to no profit, about vain and profane babblings, about fleeing also youthful lusts which war against the soul, about avoiding foolish and unlearned questions, knowing that they gender strifes rather than godliness. And thus being exhorted patiently, gently, to instruct people operating in opposition to themselves, if God peradventure, Paul says, will give them repentance to the acknowledging, acknowledging, excuse me, of the truth. Now, this instruction has always been relevant. This instruction is relevant in every age. And yet, perhaps at this time, particularly with what has happened in the last several months, the instruction that we're going to see, that we have seen over these past several weeks and that we're going to see beginning today and and moving on through 2 Timothy is perhaps more relevant than ever in our lives, in our context. It, It is something that we can very much connect to today, and particularly as we think of today's specific lesson, where we're going to learn that the longer the Lord tarries, And the deeper the world goes into the final days, the more important and relevant these instructions are going to become. And that's what we're going to find today. That's what we're going to study about beginning today. The title of the sermon, The Last Days. And I'd like to jump right in because there's quite a bit to cover. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible tells us this, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. As we step into our text today, Paul adds to all of his exhortations to Timothy by instructing him, perhaps reminding him, that God has made it very clear that in the last days, and we'll see why this is so relevant to Timothy in just a moment, that in the last days, times would become very... Perilous. Now, this word perilous, as it's translated in our King James Bibles, is used only two times in the New Testament. It's used here. And then we find it as well in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, where the the um, word that is used to translate it is fierce. Perilous, dangerous, difficult, fierce. In classical Greek, it was used often in reference to feelings or circumstances, speaking of things which are painful or things which are difficult. But when speaking of people, speaking of men who were cruel or men who were fierce. So if we're talking about the times, then it would be the idea of the times are difficult, the times are dangerous. If we're talking about the people, we're talking about people that are fierce or people that are cruel. To this end, the idea of perilous times would perhaps speak of that, that times of cruelty, of anger, of pain, of frustration. And Paul, what we will be doing today as well as into the next several weeks, will be studying the source of this, the source of this peril, the source of this danger, the source of this difficulty, the source of these angers, the source of these cruelties. But before we consider that, and we'll take time to do so this morning, these actions and these characterizations I'd like us to establish a very important context first. Paul says, as he speaks to these things that we'll study today, that these things will take place in a time called the last days. He places their existence and flourishing in the last days. And it behooves us then, if at all possible, if God has given us the means by which to do so through his word, to understand exactly what Paul means by the last days. When are the last days? Because this is going to help us contextually understand when it is Paul is warning about. We can have a right context within which to put these warnings and these exhortations. So the term last days, we're going to start kind of academically as we walk through what are the last days, and then we'll get into the teaching. The term last days, uh, we find also termed in Scripture, particularly as we transition into the Old Testament idea, latter days or latter years, and it speaks to the final period of God's timeline before what we would classify as the end, right, the end of God's timeline, the end of God's timetable, the final period of God's timeline before eternity. And the Bible gives us enough information to understand what the last days is. The term latter days is used 11 times in the Bible, all in the Old Testament. The term last days is used eight times in the Bible, three times in the Old Testament, five times in the New Testament. And in all cases, it speaks towards things that take place at the end of God's prophetic program, the things which happen toward the end of time and circumstance as the Bible presents it. Now, as we study this, we're going to see uh, the, the idea of progressive revelation Re, uh, really form, formulate. We're going to see a real time example of progressive revelation as we walk through this concept. The idea of progressive revelation is that the Bible progresses as God progressively reveals more to man. That throughout the Bible, going from the earliest history there in Genesis and Job, as it were, depending on when you're talking about writing or history, uh, and then progressing through the Bible. God is going to add more and more information to give us a clearer and clearer picture of history, of his timetable, as the Bible continues. And one of the things that we recognize is that God did not reveal everything to the people in the Old Testament, that we have significantly more revelation now as it relates to God, to his word, to his plan, to his program, than they had in the Old Testament. What God gave to them in shadows, God has given to us in in a much clearer picture And we'll see this very clearly as we walk through this concept of the last days. So in the Old Testament, adding bits and bits to the narrative, this progressive narrative, we begin with the first instance of the last days found in Genesis chapter 49, verse 1. Bible says, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. And then he goes on to tell each of his sons to give a prophetic outlook as to the results of each of his sons. We skip down to verse 10 and we see a very uh, pointed prophecy to Judah where Jacob says, The scepter shall not depart out of Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. You see there that Shiloh is capitalized. Our King James translators interpreted Shiloh to be the Messiah, and that is why they, they capitalized that particular word. Um, there's some debate about what the word Shiloh means, but we, it has been generally theologically connected to the advent of Messiah. That would be the one who would come and would finish the work of being this lawgiver and being this king. So this promise is given, and it speaks of the last days, but it's very, very general, isn't it? And we're going to see that generality continue, but become clearer and clearer as we walk through the the Old Testament. I'm not going to give you every example in the Old Testament. We're not going to walk through them all. We don't have time for that, Uh, but you can certainly feel free to do so yourself. We step next into Numbers chapter 24. And in Numbers chapter 24, uh, as, as I'm leading you through the progressive revelation, again, I'm skipping uh, some instances here, we find Balaam. And Balaam attempts to curse Israel. And as he attempts to curse Israel, blessings pour out. And one of the things that Balaam speaks to is the last days. He says in verse 14 of Numbers 24, And now behold, I go unto my people, come therefore, and I will advertise thee what this people, that would be Israel, shall do to thy people, that would be the people of Um, of, um, of Moab, I believe, Midian, Moab, one of those two, my apologies. It's one of those M ones, in the last days. And then he says in verse 17, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of, there it is, Moab. It's Moab. And destroy all the children of Sheth. And so we we see again this prophecy of a scepter rising out of Israel, out of Jacob. And we've already seen from Genesis that that will come out of Judah. And he will smite the corners of Moab, looking toward a time when the Moabites will be judged, as well as the children of Sheth. Continuing into Deuteronomy 31. Moses is writing to the people before he dies. And Deuteronomy is, in a manner of speaking, Moses' kind of final sermon to the people of Israel. And he is speaking to them about what will happen in the latter days. And he says in verse 29, "'For I know that after my death,' that's Moses' death, "'you will utterly corrupt yourselves "'and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. "'And evil will befall you in the latter days "'because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord.'" To provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. So, as Revelation progresses, we find Moses tell the nation of Israel that in the latter days great evil would befall the nation, and that specifically because they had provoked the Lord to anger. As he goes on in Deuteronomy, he makes it very clear that that if they continue to provoke the Lord, there will be a series of judgments, beginning with famine and pestilence, and their women being barren, and then ending with them being their, the land being overtaken and them being scattered. Throughout the world, a prophecy which is not fully fulfilled until seventy A.D. And so we recognize that that there is a forward-looking picture here, forward-looking to thousands of years, of a the latter days being at a time when that when great evil would befall them, and that it is placed within the context of that latter days. Uh, to that end, we're beginning to see this picture of the latter days being within at least. Uh, at least after the time of the scattering that's spoken of there in Deuteronomy. Now we jump ahead to the prophets. Isaiah chapter two, verse two, and Micah chapter four, verse one. We see in both of these instances, I won't read them uh, both to you for the sake of time, but we see that both of these speak to, in the last days, the establishment of the mountain of the house of the Lord. And we recognize as we walk through these prophecies, if you wanted to take more time to study them, that here we are talking about God's kingdom being established on earth. And as we uh, evaluate the the prophecies surrounding God's kingdom, we combine them with what we know from the revelation of Jesus Christ, we would place this squarely within the context of the millennial kingdom when Jesus Christ returns, when he judges evil, and he rules and reigns on his earth. So we find then that as the last days are starting, the picture is coming together, the last days are going to include the time when Jesus comes to, to establish the mountain of the Lord, right? To establish his Righteousness and where Jesus is, where the Messiah is exalted in the hills. So we know that 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 there's uh, the scepter will not depart out of Judah until Shiloh comes. So we see an anticipation of Messiah. We see an anticipation of judgment. We see an anticipation of the finished work of Jesus Christ, not just on the cross, but Him finishing the job and and being established and ruling and reigning in righteousness. And all of this now is what we are seeing from the Old Testament within the context of the last days. We move to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 48 and in Jeremiah 49, we see promises that in the latter days, Moab, very very much in connection to Numbers 24, and Elam will be assembled and judged for their works against Israel. So again, we're seeing not just the picture of the establishment of, of the mountain of the house of the Lord, not just the picture of the scepter or of the king taking his throne in righteousness, but also the picture of judgment of the nations. Now, if we're thinking judgment of the nations and establishment of Christ's righteousness, we are thinking toward that time that we would typically call the end times and the millennial kingdom, right? So as we're thinking of the last days, we're thinking in that context. That makes sense. Those are last days. We're we're on board with that. That's where we find ourselves as, as our mind is working toward this. Again, Ezekiel 38, both verses 8 and 16, speaks of two events, in the latter days. Ezekiel 38.8, that God will regather the nation from the sword. And then 38.16, that God would bring this man named Gog of Magog against his land in order to be glorified through him. So now we have Gog of Magog, which depending on one's theological persuasion is placed in various places. We place Gog of Magog within that final 70th week of Daniel in, in what we call the end times. So once again, in our mind, we're formulating a last day's picture that at least includes the end times, the establishment of the millennial kingdom, if not through the millennial kingdom. Final bit of Old Testament revelation is in Hosea chapter three, verse five. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. David will be their king, the nation will fear the Lord. Now as we've studied this, I hope that we have seen these things clearly. The Old Testament, one of the things I hope you've seen clearly is that the last days and the latter days have merged contexts. That whether it says the latter days or the last days, the context is the same time period. It's this time period of Messiah, it's this time period of judgment, it's this time period of the kingdom. But also I hope that you take in careful note that within the scope of the Old Testament, what we don't see mentioned here is the church, the age of grace. And the reason why we know, we know this from the New Testament is because in the Old Testament, the church was a mystery, right? And when we define a mystery in the Bible, a mystery in the Bible was something that God had previously chosen in his sovereignty not to reveal in any way, but then did reveal it later on. So the church, even what we would consider to be the entire age of grace, it was a mystery to the Old Testament. The Old Testament did not speak to this time directly. God gave no direct revelation that allowed anyone to surmise that there would be an age of time between when Messiah was revealed and when all of the elements surrounding Messiah would be finished or consummated in the Old Testament. He gave, he gave no direct revelation that would allow anyone to think that. If we were Old Testament scholars, there would not be one of us that would have assumed that there will be a period of thus far 2,000 years between when Messiah reveals himself and when Messiah finishes the job, right? That is what makes it a mystery. To that end, we cannot rule out the idea that the last days is, we, we can't say that the last days is only end times and kingdom just yet in our study, because the church would not have been mentioned. So the question is, is the church age a part of the last days, that mystery in the Old Testament, or is the church age not a part of the last days? Is the last days only what we'd consider the 70th week of Daniel, end times, and then perhaps into the millennial kingdom? That's the question that we have to ask because we would fully expect that all Old Testament latter days prophecy would have to do with those events which would be classified in the time period that's, that was not a mystery. Because God's not going to reveal the part, it, whether or not the part that is the mystery is a part of it, because it's a mystery in the Old Testament. I hope that makes sense. So we know that the end times, we know that the establishment of the, of the kingdom, that is last days. But when do the last days begin? And this question is answered for us directly in the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles, specifically Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, the disciples were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, awaiting the the endowment of the Holy Spirit's power upon them. The, The promise that Christ gave of his Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that on that day there was a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind and it filled the house and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance and the people of every tribe and nation in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost heard them speak in their own native languages. And the people began to mock them thinking that they were drunken until Peter stood up and challenged the claim, rather expressing to them that what they were seeing, what was unfolding before their eyes, was actually a fulfillment of prophecy. So we read in Acts chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. So Peter quotes here from Joel chapter two, verse 28. But it's interesting because he adds an interpretive element to his quotation, which gives us a progressive insight into God's timetable. And follow me here because this is very important and it came up a couple of weeks ago on a Tuesday night. So for those of you that were there, this is gonna be a little more familiar to you. It is not uncommon for one of the New Testament speakers or writers to reference an Old Testament passage of Scripture and to modify the quotation of that Old Testament passage of Scripture with some connecting words to a prophetic element. Now, sometimes the New Testament speaker is not actually modifying the text. They're actually quoting from what we call the Septuagint, or the Greek Old Testament. So the Greek Old Testament had some interpretive elements into it, and rather than quoting from the Hebrew Old Testament, which was perhaps more general, they were quoting from the Greek Old Testament. But there are other times where the speaker or the writer intentionally modifies a quote in order to draw a direct attention to a prophetic link. And they're doing that, as we know from Scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? Either way, we know that when we see that modification, that the Holy Spirit checked off on that modification because it's in our Bibles and our Bibles are inspired and preserved, right? Which means the Holy Spirit knew and intended what was presented in the Old Testament in the Hebrew to be modified or, or uh, clarified in the New Testament quotation or the New Testament teaching on that topic. We'll see that in just two weeks. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so if it's in our New Testament scriptures, if there's a New Testament scriptured interpretation of an Old Testament passage, that's the interpretation. We know what the Old Testament passage means now because the New Testament has told us what it means. The scriptures are the best commentary on themselves. And so this passage becomes a great illustration of what I mean. Peter quotes Joel, and he references the text as saying, it shall come to pass in the last days. Now let's take a look at what Joel actually says. And it shall come to pass afterward. And speaking afterward of various events, the particular events that he's speaking of there are the events of God scattering and and then the, the call to regather. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and, their, and your young men shall see visions. Speaking uh, in the context of God being jealous for the land, rebuking and chastening the land. And what's interesting is that in this case, the, Greeks, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, that's what you see there was LXX, right? That's the Roman numerals for 70. It was called the 70 because there were 70 translators who translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the New Testament, give or take. It's a rounded number, but, you know. So the Septuagint speaks to this exact phra- uh, phraseology. And, uh, and it shall be after these things. That's, that's the literal Greek translation of this. And it shall be after these things. And it shall come to pass afterwards. So we have a good translation here. But then Peter takes the phrase afterwards and he imposes upon it a measure of prophetic interpretation. And it shall come to pass in the last days. Connecting afterwards in Joel 2 to the last days spoken of by the prophets. And Peter says that this prophecy began its fulfillment in that day. He said, this today is a fulfillment of what Joel was saying that in, after these things, the last days will come. And then if we were to continue in the context of Joel 2, just after that, Joel continues that prophecy by speaking of things which the revelation of Jesus Christ places squarely within the, the context of the, the opening of the sixth seal. And so we see within the context of the last days, Peter says, Joel is speaking of the last days and as Joel speaks of the last days, the last days are initiated when he pours out his spirit upon all men. Uh, and the sons and the daughters prophesy and young men see visions and your old men dream dreams. To that end, we, have, we can have a confidence in when the last days began. The last days began, generally speaking, around Pentecost. Which means we have been in the last days for these last 2,000 years. And they will be fulfilled. They will finish with the establishment of righteousness, the judgment of mankind, the establishment of Christ's kingdom. That is the time period that the Bible classifies as the last days, as Peter links us to it here. And this is consistent, by the way, with what Paul writes in Hebrews chapter 1, verse, verses 1 and 2. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days, spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the, wor- the, the worlds. So we see here a, an acknowledgement that in the former times, God spoke through prophets, but in the last days, a mark of the last days, is that God is no longer speaking through the prophets. God is speaking through his Son, right? And his Son would be the Word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, and those who Jesus commissioned to pen his words. Those would be his apostles, Christ and his apostles, who penned the word of God. And thus now we have the completed word of God. This is the revelation of God to man. This is how God has spoken to us in these last days, right? So we put it all together and our general confidence then, based upon tracing the scriptures and understanding the character of the scriptures and then Peter giving the context to those prophecies gives us a measure of confidence that when, Peter, when Paul speaks of these things that will happen in the last days, these perilous times that shall come, this is speaking of, of, of a process that has been in progress for the last 2,000 years of history. But as we'll see in verse 13, in a couple of weeks, Paul warns that the character of this age will progressively degenerate as well. We'll talk about that. It's actually going to be next week. With evil men and seducers waxing worse and worse as this period of the last days continues. All of this to say that the character of this age that Paul is going to be describing in the next four verses is the character of our age, our time. This is about us. This is for us. We are in the biblical last days. By biblical classification, we are there. I don't know if we're exactly yet in the last of the last days. And I'm not saying that we're in the end times. Please notice the distinction between last days and end times. We're not in the end times. We are in the last days. The end times are the last of the last days, moving toward that end, but we're not there yet, okay? We're not in the end times yet. We certainly haven't seen the establishment of Christ's kingdom yet. But as far as the, the biblical classification of the last days, by Old Testament prophecy, it includes end times and, and kingdom transition at least. The New Testament actually pushes the starting of that back to when Jesus Christ spoke for himself and the initiation of the Spirit of God through uh, on the day of Pentecost. So in these last days, Paul tells Timothy, perilous times shall come. What will those perilous times look like? For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. I'll admit to you as a teacher, just reading this passage to you is somewhat overwhelming. It overwhelms me because I could literally spend the next several weeks just walking through how the characteristics of this particular passage link directly to what we're seeing in society. But I don't really need to do that, do I? I'm going to walk through it. I'm going to talk through it. But all you have to do is read the news. All you have to do is turn on a modern Hollywood movie. All you have to do is listen to a modern Hollywood soundtrack. All you have to do is open your eyes and look around you. All you have to do is drive down the road and look at the billboards, right? And you can see this in action. There's not a thing upon this list, not only that does not exist in our society, there's not a thing upon this list that does not define our society. There's not even a thing upon this list which our society does not openly and definitively celebrate over at least the last decade. So Let's walk through it. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. Today, we call this the self-esteem movement, that you cannot love others until you learn to love yourselves. In the jail, I sit across from people, and they always tell me the same line. I know that I need to learn to love myself. That's what they're told. They're told that they're in jail. They're told that they do drugs. They're told that they commit crimes because they haven't learned to love themselves enough yet men shall be lovers of their own selves that you cannot learn to love others until you have first learned to love yourself that love of self is beyond a virtue in our culture love of self is an unambiguous doctrine of our culture and paul says the first mark of these perilous danger danger filled fierce times is that men will elevate the love of themselves they shall be lovers of their own selves. They will be turning their hearts and minds inward. They will be their own highest priority. We talked just last week on Sunday night about the fact that when it comes to things like uh, anxiety and and, and depression and anger and these sorts of things, quite often one of the deeper roots of that is self-focus. And I told you last week that, ironically, in society, what society has done is they're prescribing the poison to try to cure The disease. They're saying you just need to love yourself more. You just need to treat yourself more. You just need to care more about yourself. You just need to put more focus on yourself. And as people try to do that, they spiral deeper and deeper and deeper into these problems because the problem is that they're lovers of their own selves. The self-esteem movement. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. Covetous. The mark of a people who lust after that which is not their own. This is the essence of the push today towards the isms, particularly the socialism and the communism. Winston Churchill once said, paraphrasing, that communism is the doctrine of covetousness. That the point is everybody is looking around at others, looking at what they have, wanting it, angry that they don't have what others have, and wanting to take from others what they have so that they can, what what the others have, so that, that they personally can have more covetousness worked to the fullest degree is when I look at others and I want what they have and I forcibly take from them what they have because I want it. A mark of the last days is a culture of covetousness, boasters, and proud. The marks of a people who are arrogant, high-minded, see their own experiences and knowledge as being sufficient in themselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. We see this today in any number of marks. Particularly, we might see this today in cancel culture. A conviction that we have the right to judge men of the past based upon our own so-called enlightened way of thinking. That we have progressed so far beyond the thinking of those men and 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 their philosophies and their ideologies that we have the right not only to change, uh, fundamentally change the the. the, the trajectory of society, but we have the right to declare their thinking, their actions, and their way evil. That I have the right to look at others simply because they're making choices that are not the choices I want and calling them evil. We see likewise this idea of proud. It is a strange thing that has happened in the last decade in our country where pride has become celebrated. There are pride parades. There is a pride month, not only the essence of what undergirds their pride, that their pride is in sexual impurity, but the very essence that they are celebrating the fact that they are proud about it. When pride is, in every context of scripture, a deep and abiding abhorrence to God, and yet pride is something which our culture celebrates. Blasphemers. Blasphemy is defined as an impiety toward God, taking that which is holy and making it profane. We see this in the degradation of marriage, taking that which God has elevated and made holy and turning it into profane. Not just in in, in the marriage in, in a sodomite context, but marriage in the context of how flippantly we are treating it in our society today. We see it in the context of abortion and eugenics, that there is the image of God that is built into man, that God has made us sacred, so much so that after the flood, God said, if an animal kills, the, if kills a man, that animal must die because he marred the image of God in a man. And we, we have taken that which is sacred and it has become profane in our culture. It has become a political talking point. It has become a political rally point. It has become a moneymaker and it has been lowered to that level from the level of actual indignity Blasphemy committed against the image of God and man. Disobedient to parents. A culture characterized by rebellion against authority. We talked about the spirit of Korah today in Sunday school. Korah stood against Moses and against Aaron and said, we are priests just like you are. We are holy priests of God. And he stood against the authorities that God has ordained. And of course the earth swallowed them up as God made his voice known in the equation, disobedience to parents. This goes hand in hand with pride and cancel culture, with revisionist history, with the whole thing. We reject the advice, the counsel, the lessons which comprise the essence of our society and our culture's historical development. We have a youth today that has been taught that, they are, that they're the ones that matter, that they're the ones that, that are building the future, that, that, that we need to follow the children. We saw it after... Uh, many of the, the, the shootings, right, with uh, the, the children who would get up and, and our politicians saying, we need to let our children lead us into the future. We've seen it with cancel culture. We've seen it with the tearing down of monuments. We are going to reject the authorities of the past. We are going to reject the wisdom of the past. We are going to call everything that the past holds as evil. And by the way, this is something which is not new to our culture. It's new to our culture, but it's not new to cultures, right? It's a common mark of the degradation of a culture, that they reject their history. I believe it was 1984 that speaks of living in the eternal present, because all history is gone. Brave New World also speaks of the idea of rejecting anything that's old, because old is inherently bad. We have seen a generation gap in the past decade, a couple of decades form, probably, probably since the 60s and 70s, a generation gap form between the old and the young where the young have cast off any respect or any acknowledgement of the wisdom of those who have gone before them. And it's a sign of the perilous times in which we live. It's a sign of spiritual degeneration in a culture unthankful, lacking gratefulness, perhaps best exemplified in the culture of entitlement, in the welfare state, that we are entitled to things, to support, to money, to food, to jobs, to opportunities, simply by virtue of existing, that these things are my so-called rights, that I'm entitled to feeling safe, that I'm entitled to emotional stability, that I'm entitled to not have to be offended, that I'm entitled to not being challenged in my thinking, to, uh, that, that I'm entitled to living in a safe space as the word is today. No gratitude for what I have been given. No gratitude for the sacrifices that have been made on my behalf. No gratitude, again, that comes back to cancel culture. No gratitude for the, 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 the marks of history that have brought us here. No gratitude for the 600,000 people that died fighting a war over the very thing that, that people say today, which is, racism, no, no gratitude for the fact that 600,000 people died fighting that battle 150 years ago. We just gloss over that. We jump right back to 1619. It's a, it's a culture that is unthankful. It's a culture that has no bearing on recognizing that what they have is not entitled to them. And it's a sign of a degenerate culture. Unholy. A profane culture where nothing is sacred, where all standards and norms of decencies and decorum are torn down to make way for maximum self-exaltation and maximum self-indulgence. You can, of course, look at this in any number. You can look look at this through the way Hollywood espouses their false doctrines. You can look at this through the body positivity movement. You can look at this in any number of ways throughout our culture today and find a profane culture a culture that, that, that sees nothing as holy, nothing as sacred, nothing as out of bounds. We often would place upon this the idea of hedonism. Of course, we'll get to that a little bit more when we talk about loving pleasures more than loving God. The idea that I will pursue my highest lusts. I will hold nothing as sacred. Without natural affection. This word literally means heartless speaks of having a hard heart toward that which one should naturally love. Again, there's any number of ways in which we can see this, whether that be uh, God's design or familial care or natural inclination. As it relates to God's design, um, once again, we can see this with the, the concepts of marriage and the natural design for God in marriage, and yet the rejection of that natural design. Familial care, uh, the rejection of family, the rejection of, uh, of, of caring for one another— Uh, the hard hearts that we have toward one another within culture, uh, where we're willing to hate our brother, we're willing to harm our brother simply because of a disagreement among ourselves, whether that be a natural inclination, part and parcel to the idea that children are raised by loved ones and their parents to be blessed and provided for in the country and culture, only to exhibit an unthankful, self-entitled attitude toward those who care for them, also naturally extended to God's created order, male and female, husband and wife, without natural affection, uh, lacking that natural affinity for those things which, are, w- which ought to be there. Truce breakers, false accusers, those who have no conception of integrity, those who, have every, who, who every interaction is not based upon whether things are true and false, whether things are right or wrong, whether there's any integrity, whether there's any truth to it, whether uh, th- th- there's any truth to an accusation, but rather only rooted in what will get me ahead. This goes right in hand with, again, the cancel culture, the Me Too movement, Believe All Women, the whole culture surrounding guilty until proven innocent that has arisen in our, in our age. That it's not my job to prove that you're guilty, it's your job to prove that you're innocent. Allowing people to lie with impunity, destroy others' lives with unfounded accusations, and delight in that destruction. People whose word is less than worthless, who not only cannot be trusted or relied upon, but must be guarded against because they're not just going to tell you something and not do it. They are going to attack you through lies. It's the sign of a degenerate culture, the perilous times in which we live. Incontinent, fierce. This describes those who refuse to exercise self-control, lashing out at others in rage, angry. Basically, get on Twitter. That's incontinent and fierce. Get on Social media. Social media culture, that's incontinent and fierce. Perfect example. I don't even need to go farther than that. I don't need to describe it. Just get on social media. You'll see incontinent and fierce. That's what it's defined by. Despisers of those that are good. Isaiah says, woe unto them that call good evil and evil good. And this is the idea. Those who are evil are praised and those who are good are censored. Those who riot and loot and destroy property are praised, while those who simply want to pray and worship God together in church are akin to murderers. Those parents who want to raise their children, love their families, love their country, love their God, they're evil child abusers. But those who want to dress up their little boys like little girls to be merchandise for pedophiles are praised and called heroes, bold in our culture. That's a backwards culture a degenerate culture, perilous, difficult, dangerous, fierce, characterizes the last days. Traitors, those who gladly and readily betray those who trust them. Heady, those who are rash, thoughtless, impulsive, high-minded, those who operate under deep self-conceit, the, the, the elevating themselves, seeing themselves as the end all be all, seeing themselves as better than others because of perhaps some identity that they have. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. A culture and people who live devoted to the fulfillment and gratification of their base and carnal instincts and lusts, who have no capacity to restrain themselves and no desire to restrain themselves from anything that their heart desires. This is a follow your heart philosophy that has been inculcated into culture for the last 70 years. Do what feels right. Follow your heart. If it feels good, do it lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, that's hedonism, unrestrained fulfillment of my lust. And if a man leaves himself unrestrained, there is no limit to where his heart will take him. We continue then in verse five. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such, turn away. We're gonna get more, we're gonna start in verse five next week and kind of do a little bit of a crossover because in verse five, we're transitioning from general to more specifically false teachers and those who claim to follow Christ but follow these wicked ways. So we'll make that transition next week. But we're speaking also of a, of a false spiritual, spirituality. And this is the final characteristic of the perilous times in which Paul warns. People who are very spiritual who speak often of God, who regard a spiritual presence of sorts, but who deny the true and living God, and so deny the power of God. These are false teachers who teach people about a God, but their God is made in their own image. Their God is made after their likeness. Their God is, exists only to self-validate them. Their God exists only to make them feel good. Their God exists only to give them prosperity. There's no sacredness. There's no obedience. There's no clarity. There's no holiness. There's no righteousness. There is only a God erected in the image of man. This God has no expectations or desires except those already residing in the sinful hearts of men. And so their teachers call their listeners unto a form of godliness. This might come with a measure of morality, be a good person preaching, but completely outside the spirit of the living God. It is not God working in them righteousness. It is not bearing the fruit of the spirit. It is self-discipline at best. And so denying the power to do anything that they preach. These are the new age teachers of the day whether we want to talk about more church-connected teachers like a Rick Warren or Joel Olstein. or whether you want to talk about a non-church-connected teacher like Oprah, who is probably the most spiritually, the, the, the most popular spiritual guide in America, a prophetess of Satan, quite literally. Deeply spiritual, speaks often of God, but the God of which she speaks is the spitting image of the father of lies himself a prophetess of Satan who calls people to tap into their own spark of divinity. You hear that uh, from from numerous people. To find in themselves self-actualized divinity. This is humanism. They're proclaiming themselves to be their own God. And they're saying that they have everything within themselves to be God. And so building their doctrines and convictions upon the dictates of their own deceitful hearts and Satan's insidious lies. And when these type of people become heroes in our cultures, become the authorities and the standards unto which we look to to lead us and to guide us, when our leaders have been completely subverted by these forms of of ungodliness, these fake forms of godliness, which are devoid of the power of God, we see the manifestations of perilous times now, I hope and trust that as I've walked through this list, you can see how closely it res- resembles our culture. The moral, debased, and subverted culture in which we live. Much of which, by the way, has found its way into Christian churches. And take note of that. Many Christian churches have been completely subverted by those same truths. Those sa- not truths, those same realities <laughs> that we, we just read in verses 2 through 4. And much of which I have no doubt, though I say this in great grief, has probably found its way into our hearts and homes in some way, shape, or form. Whether that's through our television sets or our computer screens, whether that's through the music we're listening to, whether that's through the clothes that are in our closet. Whether that's through the philosophy by which we handle money, our desire for things. Covetousness, whether that's through the manner in which we interact with another in a proud, boastful, self conceited, high minded sort of a way. And what that means, and we're going to stop here, what it means is that we need, to, we need to take inventory. As always, the purpose of these messages is not for me to sit here in my ivory tower to look down at all the masses and, and unwashed masses and say, you sinners. This is not the purpose of the word of God. This is never the purpose of the word of God. It is not for us to commend ourselves while we look at others and judge them. These exist to warn us of the times that will come. But notice the last phrase there. From such turn away. It's to warn us to keep ourselves pure because these things can find their way into our hearts and quite easily, folks. These compromises, we're not immune to these compromises in our own lives. We're not immune to these compromises in our own families. So we're going to stop in the middle of this context, but I think we need to because I don't want us to get overloaded with information uh, and I don't want things to fall beneath the cracks. So we're going to slow down. We're going to be deliberate here. And by stopping here, I think we can best achieve this goal of introspection We live in a culture which completely mirrors Paul's warning of the perilous times that shall come. I don't know how much worse it can get. I don't know how much worse it will get. Maybe I'll stand up here in a decade and marvel at how we could have possibly thought that it was bad in 2020, you know, 2030. 2020 was nothing, right? Um, I don't know. Maybe I will be sitting with people in a decade, and I'll be considering the audacity of imagining that, that this was it and that there wasn't going to be some other revival around the corner. I don't know, because that could happen too. Maybe I'll be pr- sitting in a prison in a decade because I had the audacity to preach the gospel. I don't know what the future will bring. But I do know that at this time, the list found in 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 through 5, exemplifies the popular culture of our day in this time and in this Western world. And I also know that there are those among us who have appropriated this culture into our lives in ways that we shouldn't. That you are joining in this perverse culture, in their subverted and perverse entertainment. You're joining this culture in the unholy ways that you display your body or in unholy ways that you act toward one another. You are joining this proud and this heady culture in rebellion against authority, in personal and unthankful entitlement you have been subverted by the self-esteem movement, by cancel culture, by revisionist history that compels you to hypocritically judge and cast off the natural affections for people, cultures, the natural respect that our, our authorities are due. The, those, those cultures, those efforts, those people that have sacrificed to secure our comfort and well-being. Perhaps you have joined the culture in calling good evil and evil good, seeing those things which are done of which culture was once ashamed and celebrating them openly through some misguided or absurd redefinition of the concept of tolerance. Taking that which God hates and seeing it as virtuous, even striving about words in order to seek to conform the Bible, to to biblically justify that which God calls abomination, that which God calls evil, and you're twisting the Bible in order to justify your way of thinking. And I speak in generalities here because the applications are literally limitless and I'm not here to come down on you. I'm here to tell you what the word of God is saying and I'm here to to give the soil through which the spirit of God can work. So if if, if there's a particular that the spirit of God is placing his thumb on, don't ignore that. Don't say, well, Pastor Wickler's just trying to make me feel guilty here. I'm not. I, I haven't mentioned anything particular, right? I haven't. I've mentioned categories, that you can think through, but I haven't mentioned particulars. I do that on purpose. I want the Holy Spirit to mention the particulars to you. And if the Holy Spirit's mentioning the particulars to you, listen to that, respond to that, deal with that. We live in a perverse and a degenerate culture, a culture which celebrates and protects both spiritual and physical whoredoms, a culture which advocates for children to be subjected to material through teaching, through entertainment, which will scar their souls for life. A culture which carries no respect for integrity, for honesty, for natural loyalty, but elevates rebellion and self-conceit. You've gotta see that that's the culture in which we live, which means if you're gonna step into it in any way, shape, or form, you've got to do it with guards up. You've gotta do it with eyes wide open. You step into culture knowing that that culture wants you dead. And I don't mean physically wants to kill you. I mean spiritually dead. It wants to erode your soul. Pastor, you're over-exaggerating. I don't think I am. If you want to contend with me about that, we can, we can sit down and have coffee over it and I'd love, to, I'd love to chat with you. But I don't think I'm over-exaggerating it. My prayer is that the Spirit of God will illuminate your heart to, these spe- to the specifically needful things for you that he will convict your heart of your own attachment in some way, shape, or form to something that is unhealthy, to something that is not going to profit, to something which bears the spirit of the perilous times in which we live. We're living in them. We can't get away from that. And we need to be in it because if we're not in and among the people, then we can't reach the people. But we must guard ourselves from allowing the culture to find its way into our hearts, into our families, into our churches. We must guard ourselves against the, the, the ways that they take these movements and these ideas and they spiritualize them and they biblically twist them, striving about words to no profit, twisting the word of God in order to justify those things which are obviously wrong. Perhaps the Spirit of God has made it clear to you that you've been compromised in your manner of thinking, in your manner of living, through some ways that you've allowed our anti-Christ culture to infiltrate your life. And maybe you don't like this conviction because you want to continue in that line of thinking. And maybe running through your head is a litany of justifications as to why that thing, which so clearly bears the marks of spiritual destruction, compromise, and ungodliness is actually okay because it's different in your case. It's always different in your case, always. Because the human capacity to self-justify is limitless. Limitless. I can self-justify anything, which is why we need a standard outside of ourselves. And we have it. We've just got to believe it and obey it. But the call of the Spirit of God in our lives is to turn away from such things, to reject them, to reject this way of thinking, to reject this line of actions, to reject the undergirding philosophies that lend themselves to these perilous concepts reject this self-love movement, reject rebellion, reject entitlement, reject pride in all forms and manifestations, reject the pursuit of pleasure as our highest pursuit of philosophy, as I've mentioned, called hedonism, and certainly reject the vast number of teachers claiming to represent spirituality, but denying the power of God rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ and established through the written word of God. Turn away from these things, Christian. Don't allow them into your life. Don't allow the Christless culture of the day to become the framework through which you live your life, through which you see your life. Well, I can handle it, pastor. I enjoy the world without letting it affect my manner of thinking. Nah. It doesn't work that way. You take a rotten apple and you throw it into a barrel of clean apples, and you're going to have a lot of rotten apples when the dirty's with the clean. The dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. It's absolutely absurd. It's a lie of the devil and a subversive line of thinking to think that we can interact, that we can play with this fire without getting burned. We are called to be in this world, for indeed, if we are not in this world, we will never win this world. But the moment you begin to indulge this world, the moment the things of this world become familiar and comfortable The moment the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the things I've described today, right? I'm not talking about cars. I'm not talking about computers. I'm not talking about the physical things. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the philosophies of this world, the direction of this world, the culture. The moment that we seek to engage with this world by engaging in the philosophy of this world, the subversion of your testimony, of your distinctions, of your purity, of your effectiveness for Christ has begun. And it is incumbent upon us to try the spirits, whether they be of God. And to whatever degree the philosophies of the things with which we interact and engage bear the marks of the things that Paul is warning us against and calling us away from, to whatever degree they bear those marks, to that degree we must turn away in our minds, in our families, in our churches. And let me be abundantly clear. We do not reject the unbeliever because they are subverted by the world. The unbeliever will be subverted by the world because they are of the world. This is not a call for you to, again, for you to go out and to judge others. This is not a call for you to go and to see the unbelievers as a bunch of lepers that you're just going to avoid at all costs. The unbeliever is going to be in the world, going to be in the culture, going to have this mindset because that is all they have. They cannot but be subverted by the world. The Bible says the devil has blinded their minds. They are invested in this world because they are the world. We don't reject the unbeliever. We don't attempt to moralize the unbeliever. It's not my job to make them moral people. It's not gonna matter a lick if they stand before God and they become more moral because of me. We don't attempt to moralize them. We attempt to evangelize them to give them the gospel, to show them the difference, to pass from death unto life, to be made new. The only solution to their blinded minds and subverted souls is to be made a new creation through the power of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation. That's, That's their only hope. I'm not going to be able to reason this culture into morality. It doesn't work that way. If we're going to see a moral culture, it's going to come as they are saved and transformed. And then that filters into culture. And then that will filter to politics. Politics is downstream of culture. Culture is downstream of the church. Culture is where it is because the church is ineffective. And the reason why the church has become ineffective is because rather than us winning culture, culture's been winning us for generations now. For we who are in Christ, for we who have the Spirit of God indwelling, to open our hearts and minds to the influence of these philosophies is to grieve and to quench the Holy Spirit, to subvert the power of God in us, to invalidate our testimony before the world. And it's a manifestation that the world has reached you rather than you having reached the world. And brethren, from such turn away. When you see the marks of these things in culture, note those marks, understand what you're dealing with. It doesn't mean that God won't call you to minister among such People, such perversions, such subversions, but it does mean that you must live aware, with those, aware of those with whom you interact and only interact having already turned away from such philosophies and ideologies yourself. That's why it's important to be in church. This is the place where we come to get realigned so that we don't lose our reference point throughout the weeks. If I'm interacting with only an unbelieving culture, it is very easy for me to lose my reference point on truth. And I start to drift. So I come back to church and I get among people that believe the word of God like I do. And we hold one another accountable. And we have iron, sharpening iron. And we, we, we sharpen that blade again so that we can go out readjusted and go into society and be effective. Ever guarding our hearts. Ever having a strong Christian accountability. Ever clinging to the truths of scripture as more important than your necessary food. Because as we will see next time, these philosophies are folly. There's nothing redeemable about them. They are tainted to their core, rooted in the character of the wicked one, and destined to share in his damnation, which is just. And brethren, we're called to turn away from such things. And so I commend these many characteristics to the Spirit of God which is in you. I ask you, as I do myself, to prayerfully consider this list that we might make sure that our hearts are right with the Lord. To search our own hearts, to do an inventory of the philosophies and the ideologies of the activities which have characterized our own lives. To see if the attributes of these perilous times have found some foothold in our lives, in our families, in our church. And may God help us to be a pure people. May God help us that we may be as Paul called Timothy to be a couple of weeks ago, Vessels of honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.